Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We're going to read from um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. I don't know if that doesn't come up on the slide or whatever, but just listen anyway. Now, when the, he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That, that's the significant. That's Jesus taking on the posture of the rabbi, sitting down. And his disciples, so that we know at that point there's about four fishermen who are part of that band, they came to him. And then we find out in Matthew 7 later, there's a bigger crowd in the background listening in as well. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then finally, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, sorry, the persecuted, because of those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I was asked a few weeks ago, three weeks ago to come, Tim texted me and instinctively I just texted back, yes, I'll come here this morning. No hesitation, straight away. Because the Oasis Centre, some years ago, I had an encounter with God here that made such a powerful mark upon my life. It's one of those landmark moments that you don't forget. And so partly as I'm speaking, I don't know how this is going to go, because I used to speak a long time ago, but I've not done it for quite a long time, because I'm, I'm now I'm retired, I don't do anything. <laughs> but I'm partly reliving my steps this morning. You know, I don't know if there are landmark occasions in your life, certain pivotal moments that have happened. This is one for me. And I'm not reliving out of sentiment, but as I find as I get older... There's a growing hunger in me again to experience the living God at work. And then I texted back. Then I realized he'd asked me to speak. And I kind of think about, oh, he's asked me to speak. He's just come to the Oasis Center. Then I text back to say, what do you want me to minister on? Thinking, gosh, that was probably a bit too quick, you know. So it just so happens that the scripture, would you believe it, was so in line. I didn't know this. Got to believe me. So in line with God's dealing was with me that, that day. And that encounter changed me. And it confronted me with God's heart for the poor. With a sense of mourning in my life. His mercy. And wanting a more of a hunger and thirst for his justice to be done. I say this morning, just pray, Lord, let us encounter you and be changed. Encountering God is important. I found out six years ago my mum died and my dad 
90s, now to 92 years old. He couldn't obviously sleep. He was a dementia carer for 12 years. And he began to tell me over 40 years of his encounters with God. And I never knew. Such a humble man. He didn't tell anyone. The family just wanted to. But all these encounters with God that he'd been having. And it's so important that just as Israel were a people of the presence, a people of encounter, that we are a people of encounter. So this morning, let us encounter through these difficult scriptures, you may think, what on earth is going on here? Let us encounter God. These are called the Beatitudes. And it's definitely not about Jesus, as we read them out, imparting to his disciples, a set of rules, a set of eight rules to live by. And maybe as I read them, some of you thought, well, that's beyond me. I can't do that. Or even the not a list of the revenge of the no hopers. <laughs> For those who have not made it in this world, that's not what the Beatitudes are. Absolutely not. But they're intended... And they're all interlinked as virtues that represent the true power dynamics of Jesus' world. And they're back to front or upside down. What on earth is that saying? It's what we look like, the church, when we respond in our community, life together, and our witness out there in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the church should be looking like. And it's, it's, it's looking to see that indeed there'll be change. Change that everything, as I've said already, is going to be turned upside down. Or better to say, the world is, the upside, is upside down. Jesus is going to turn it the right way up. It's about Jesus starting off his kingdom. And Matthew is saying to the church, because he's writing to the church, so he's writing to us, he's saying, the kingdom has started now and you better get on board. Now it started. To use the language of Matthew as we've read out, we are blessed of God. Blessed of God and by God. Because we're kingdom of heaven people. That's who we are. These sayings are bookended with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Starts off the first beatitude, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven characteristics and each blessing, believe it or not, is a sign of life. A sign of life that the kingdom of God has come, that new creation, to use the Apostle Paul's phrase, has come. And what is happening is that God's transforming work is being carried out within us. And also, as we move around outside in society, as we're salt and light in society. In other words, it's a checklist, if you like of phrases that what is expected of us when God is about and doing his business. And the wonderful thing is this, there is blessing, there's joy and peace resulting of being right with God. That's wonderful. It's great news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. These are blessed habits, if you like, that we need to practice now because the kingdom of God has come. In anticipation of the full realization of when the kingdom comes fully, when is that? When Jesus returns, it will come in all its fullness. Let me explain. There's a bit of a Bible study for you. There's a framework for living associated with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's another, just the same thing, just another it's a phrase that Matthew likes and uses. That certainly early Christians and certainly Jewish believers understood that our church in the 21st century has somewhat ignored. And it's not been on our agenda. We've lost sight of it, if you like. Something that the early church knew had happened. But more recently, it's coming back into focus. And if you get onto the School of Theology, you probably will go into far more depth than I could or, or will do this morning. But let's just look at that. Firstly, the kingdom of heaven, this, this term that he uses... What does it mean? You've probably already seen this. It's God's rule. It's God's reign. Heaven is simply where God dwells. It's God's reality. And in Matthew, if you mistaken, if you think the kingdom of heaven is just somewhere where we'll enter when we die or go to heaven. In fact, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 says this, let your kingdom done. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's bringing the kingdom down now that's important. And importantly, this kingdom of heaven, it involves bringing God's reign, God's rule, God's reality in the here and now, okay, as well as waiting for it to come in all its fullness when Jesus returns back. Jesus, stay with me, I'll come out of this bit of complication in a little while. Jesus understood his ministry in stages. There was his teaching, as we've seen today. We have his death and his resurrection, that's another stage. And then we have his second coming. Those are three fundamental stages. And the kingdom of heaven is the same way is to be understood in stages. When Jesus came as a person, he brought this kingdom, this rule, this reign. And then another important stage was his cross and resurrection, which has brought a complete change in world history. It's like people were saying, what's the biggest thing that's going to happen? No, the biggest thing that's going to happen has happened. It happened at the cross. There's nothing, anything more powerful, more life-changing than the cross of Christ. A powerful, amazing, and it split history in two. And we, the Bible says, have been raised with Christ. So we have this life, if you like, this life of Christ in us. And if you're a believer, if you come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, it's being experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got, if you like, God's future, God's new reality has come to live within us. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited now. He calls it new creation. We're new creation. Something new, brand new has started inside of us. The future has started now. 
It's broken in on this tired old world through what Jesus has done. But also, to get more complicated, the future lies in the future. The future has come, but the future lies in the future and will come when Jesus returns. And that's when his reign, his rule, his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven will come in all its fullness and become true reality. And then at that point, when he comes fully, we won't go back to being arrogant, to having large egos or whatever. These things that are put down in the Beatitudes, these phrases of blessing, will come together in all its fullness when Jesus returns. So in a nutshell, nearly finished that complicated bit, through the person and work of Christ, we are to practice right now the habits of the kingdom. If you like, these blessings are habits of the kingdom. And they'll find their goal in the coming of our future hope when Jesus Christ returns. And it is so different from the way, as we know, that the world says do life. Absolutely so different. And even when Jesus gathered these people around and they sat down, it's not, a, not the type of kingdom that the Jews expected. Because Jesus is saying there's no violence, there's no hatred of your enemies, there's no anxious protection of what you've got, of your land or your property. And, and also it's contrary to all that Rome was saying at that time because they were coming as being bringing salvation through force and turning the world upside down. No, Jesus is saying something that previously was not in the world through me is now going to happen. Genuine human life reflecting God's glory will start to appear in his disciples through a glad an unworried trust in God. And that is being displayed in my life towards other people. And the world, as I said, is not saying, you know, actually influence people around you in this way. No, the Lord is saying humility, mercy, justice, if you know me, if you follow my ways, those things you're going to start because of the power of the Holy Spirit to be displayed in your life. Another way of saying this is we are, as believers, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, we're not going to look at all these this morning. There isn't time, but we'll pick out a few and just see what, they, what they're about. Let's briefly look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, in the... The, the words at a glance, it speaks to many today, for many wonder how to survive ordinary life. Many are lonely, downcast, discouraged. And, and the media, you know, we've, all we've got is the war in Europe. And many of us have lost hope in politicians. There seems no good news around. And I expect many even here, if we're honest, we're perplexed and we're reaching out for help. And this phrase includes that, but it's going much, much, much more deeper into things. Because this beatitude, it's the key to all that follows. Because when God sets up his sovereign rule on earth as in heaven, it's the poor in spirit through whom he's going to do that. There's no entry into the kingdom of God without being poor 
in spirit. It's absolutely fundamental. We start with a beatitude that requires an emptying, whereas all the other beatitudes are about a filling. And behind it is, is, is a dismissal of any idea that we can do anything ourselves. That we are, before God, utterly incapable of doing anything in our own strength. You know, as those people got round Jesus, they would say, identify, that's me. That's how I feel. Maybe it's like, like you this morning. Because even today, society emphasizes to make it in life, you've got to be self-reliant, self-confident, self-determined, self-expression. It's all those things are all needed. But this verse proclaiming that joy and peace, God's reward, requires an emptying, first and foremost, deep within. And it brings something in total contrast to the, what the world is saying. Because here we're looking at coming before God, being confronted by God. And by doing so, in his presence, we find ourselves in poverty of spirit. In other words, completely undone. None of my, knowing that none of my natural resources, none of my abilities, even for those who are educated, or those who've got standing, or those who've got status, or power, or wealth, is of no relevance, no use before God. It counts for absolutely nothing. It's an absence of pride that we can do anything for ourselves when faced with God. And we have to admit a spiritual poverty. We have to set aside our ego, any arrogance, and humble ourselves before God. And whether we're poor or we're rich, all must humble themselves before God. In other words, it's saying we are to become totally dependent on God as our saviour. It's a picture of being unburdened from ourselves. The world says, I'm master of my own destiny and my fate. The kingdom, of person, uh, king, kingdom person says, I throw myself on the mercy of God. The world accumulates, whereas kingdom people say, I don't need anything anymore. I need God. He is my all in all. That's what the Apostle Paul learned to say that I'm satisfied in whatever state I'm in. Nothing got in the way of Christ. Reputation, privilege, qualifications. Am I living like that? Are we living like that? Are we living, letting, letting things go? To live in such a way with deep reverence, deep dependence on God. I believe with all my heart needs to be recaptured by the church in these days. That it's the way that we come into the faith and then for the rest of our lives, it's the way that we are to go. Living before him as a prophetic sign that I'm on holy ground, that he's my Lord and he's my savior. Don't let personal success, even as a fellowship, as you grow, get in the way of the Lord. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us reliant on you. Do not let your glory depart from us. Os Guinness, Christian thinker and elder statesman, apologist, said this of the Christian Puritans in the 1600s. They lived their lives before an audience of one. God and God alone. Their motto was this. Before others, I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. We'll do this, the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Again, it's, it's a reversal of all that we've been, 
been told and taught in life. Because unlike society that says, forget your troubles now, have entertainment, have money, live for today, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But the Christian has a different attitude. In fact, this beatitude renounces what the world calls happiness and even peace. Luke 6 also talks about beatitudes, he puts it this way. Woe to you who laugh now. You will mourn and weep. But to those who mourn now, you will have the last laugh. You will laugh. He's not saying that we need to be full of pity and self-shame. To walk around with long faces is exactly the opposite. But this kingdom business, it's serious business. And there's two aspects here that, that I think it brings out. One, as we've looked at, it looks at our hopelessness before God. It recognizes that sin, that wrongdoing, is a problem. And it needs sorting out. And even as Christians, when we do wrong, we know that Scripture says in 1 John 2 verse 1, we have an advocate, Jesus, who comes, who helps us, who comes as a mediator between us. But there's a sense in which we're aware of that and it makes us mourn. But there's another sense, a deeper sense of, of what it means to mourn. And it's to grieve over the state of the world. Kingdom people grieve over the state of the world because we see its disconnect with God and it leads us to mourn. We're grieved by broken relationships that we're all too probably in family units and extended families aware of. But those who are believers who mourn over the way that things are in the world, they do so with hope-filled mourning because we are those who live with hope that the world will be set to rights when that kingdom fully comes. In this way, we're comforted. That big chapter, massive chapter, Romans 8, it's that boom of a chapter that comes. But in there, there's three groanings. It says creation groans. It says believers, we groan. And then it talks about the Holy Spirit groaning within us. There's a, a mourning that goes on deep within when we see that the world is out of sync with God. And even the Holy Spirit gets hold of us in intercession and in prayer to pray for those things. But the good news here, as we do, we look with hope. Revelation 21 verse 4 says this. Often at a Christian funeral, you'll hear this. He shall the Lord, wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And when God turns the world the right way up, completely, and he's doing it now, he started now, but at the second coming of Christ, those with grief in their hearts, this beatitude says, will find comfort because the world will then be put to rights. Death itself will, hallelujah, be overthrown. Death shall be no more. This tired old world will be renewed from top to bottom. And in meantime, as Christians, we have this hope-filled grieving as we look at the world in its bitterness, violence, injustice, oppression. We have grief because of the state of the world, but in the middle of it, because of our faith in Christ, we have hope, 
hope that no one and nothing can take away. And we're to bring that hope in our everyday living, day to day, to those who don't know Christ. Let's just go on and leave one one, one or two. Let's go on and say, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I'll leave you the rest of the notes and we can put it up and, and, and go through all the others, but there's not time. What is mercy? It's, it's the act of care and compassion to help someone hurting. And the Lord is saying to his disciples, to us this morning, we are to be merciful in the way we act towards another. In a world where mercy is weakness. And our, our culture is more towards judgment. In that setting, we are called to show mercy. You know, Jesus at his dinner table had full of rejected people. The Pharisees called them sinners. They wanted to hang out with Jesus because they received mercy. And we've joined that table, many of us here this morning. And some here may have experienced shame, pain, sorrow, brokenness, harshness. But in Jesus' kingdom, we have found refuge in him. Because the Bible says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this kingdom virtue of mercy, God wants us to cultivate it deep in the innermost parts of our being and our lives, so that we as kingdom people, we extend mercy to others. There's a Christian lawyer who's one of my favorites. He's called Brian Stevenson. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, he's a U, Christian U.S. lawyer, and he's given his life to defending those who caught up unjustly on death row. You may have read the book, Just Mercy, I highly recommend it. You may have seen the film that's been in the cinemas or watched the TED Talk on injustice. He says this, how his Christian life motivates him. He says, it's important to get closer to people who have been excluded, oppressed and marginalized because too often we create solutions from a distance. We cannot become indifferent to the sufferings of other people. We cannot become blind. It's easy to look the other way. But if we want mercy, we will be willing, we'll have to be willing to give mercy and don't just give it to those who deserve it. You have to give it to the undeserving. He said, I've been broken by some of the circumstances I've been in. I've seen horrific injustice. I've seen people executed. I've seen people terribly abused. And in that moment of brokenness that I experienced, I've come to recognize that that's when we see God's power can be made perfect. As we go on with the rest of the kingdom of heaven in, in, in later preachers, you see that we're called to be salt and light in our environment, in messy situations. And we can become tired because it's a tiring business extending mercy rather than looking the other way. Let's just finish with, with one more. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. In a world at war, we're called to, to a different way of being human. 
I don't know if you found this. You may find it in your family and society. What To stand between, between two warring factions is one of the most difficult and challenging, draining things to do. When two people that you love and respect and they can't get on and you're in the middle and you don't want to be there and you've got a massive headache and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing, but there's something that says in you, stay, stay. Because stay to be a mediator, stay in the middle of everything. And the accuser of the brethren, the Satan, that's a word for him. He appears highly skilled in the area of bringing discord. Highly skilled. He's superb at it. He's been doing it from the beginning of time. And it's challenging being a peacemaker. But in all these other attitudes expressed This gives us the grace to stand in a difficult place. And maybe you're right there at this moment in time, in challenging circumstances. God bless you and give you his strength in the power of the Holy Spirit to stand there and to not give up. We're not called to be involved in gossip, to be involved in factions. Rather, we are to work to bring the presence of Christ to be a peacemaker, and also to pray on a bigger scale for peace, for national, for at an international level. Those are sons of God. You know why it says that? Because that's what we are. We're, when we're blessed, we're sons and daughters of the living God when we come into his kingdom. And if you like, it's a term that denotes us as different from the world. It's, it's a term for us being in the family of God, sons and daughters of the living God. In other words, being peacemakers, you're representing the family. You're representing the firm. It's the way it should be. The Lord is pleased with you. You're happy. You're blessed because you're doing that. I just finish in, in summary. We just looked, I think, at three of them. And if we looked at the rest of them in the same way, if we're honest... These Beatitudes, they're challenging. They're really, really challenging things. But as followers of Jesus, as disciples of him, we're called to struggle with, to pray through, to live them out in the power of the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. And if we do this, if we extend mercy, if we live as those who are pure in heart, if we live as, 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 as peacemakers, we will find that we're becoming a prophetic sign in Gorton to all as we go out from here, all around us, that there's a better way of being a human being. There's a better way of living, and it's God's way. It's God's kingdom way.